0: Well, I'm so glad you guys are here. Uh, welcome again. We are in our third week of our series called Led by Presence. And here's what uh, we're discovering in this series that um, we're, we're kind of discovering, and maybe for you it's a rediscovering, kind of like it is for me, of the reality that God's desire for us. Our created purpose, the reason we were made, the reason we were saved, is so that we would have presence with Him, so that we might live in His presence and dwell in His presence and and be led by His presence. It's why we were created. It's why we were saved. And and we looked last week at how as we draw near to the presence of God and make His presence uh, the central priority of our life, centering our lives around him and around his presence, something powerful begins to happen, which is we become the people of God, um, empowered by the presence of God, out living on the mission of God. And that's a beautiful thing that begins to happen that we can't do apart from the presence of God. And so this morning, what I'm wanting us to discover is not only does God desire this for us, Not only has he created us and saved us for it, called us to make it central, but as we experience God's presence, we're going to discover what we want is more and more and more of his presence. We become desperate for more of God. And so I want to begin by asking you a question this morning. Here's a question. If you could have anything in this world, all right, no strings attached, none, Anything. Doesn't matter. If you ask for it, you got it. If you say, I want this, the truck's going to back up and dump it in your front yard. Anything that you want in this world, no strings attached, what would it be? Don't shout out because I don't want to know some of you, <laughs> you might ask for some weird stuff, right? So, what, but think, what, what would I really want? Would I want, you know, I would really want financial security if I, if I just never had to worry about that again. So, if I had all the finances that I felt like we needed, or if I, I had the, a better job, if I got a six-figure income, if, if um, um, and man, if I just knew, you know, my kids were going to be successful and that they were going to be successful citizens and humans, and, you know, or if I could just get my kids to pick up their socks and underwear, I'd take that. Give me that. That'd be amazing. Maybe, well, maybe that's my house. I don't know. But, uh, uh, but what, what would you ask for, right? Now, let me add a layer to it. So, again... You can, you can have anything and everything that you ever wanted. The life, the house, the job, the successful kids, you got, you got all of that. But in order to have that life, you had to give up something incredibly valuable. You had to give up something of great value in order to have that. This is exactly the situation and the question that Moses is wrestling with in Exodus 33. That's where we're going to start this morning. If you want to grab your Bible, go to Exodus chapter 33. Moses is wrestling with this question of, I can have everything, but in order to have it, I have to give up something of great value. And here's kind of where we are in the na- the narrative. In Exodus 32, um, God, Moses is on the mountain with God. God is speaking to him, giving him the Ten Commandments, and, and he's been up there a long time. And the people are, something, something different is happening at the bottom of the mountain, right? God, Moses is meeting with God on the mountain, but down there where the people are is a whole different scene, and God's people are getting antsy, and they're getting restless, and they're starting to look away and forget the presence of God, and they go to Aaron and all the other priests, and they say, we want you to make for us a, an image that we can worship, and so they do. And Aaron takes all, he says, give me all the ornaments, give me your bracelets, your necklace, your earrings, give me all of that. And he takes all of their ornaments and he melts them down and he makes for them a golden what? What did he make? Golden calf. That's right. He makes a golden calf. And suddenly the people begin to worship this golden calf saying things like, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. Now, think about the staggering nature of that level of idolatry and rebellion. Think about that. God had brought them out. And then, so, so God kind of taps Moses on the shoulder and says, um, Hey, you may need to get off this mountain because the people have lost their mind. They have made a golden image. They have created a God with their own hands. And they have, they have absolutely corrupted themselves. And my anger is burning against them. And he sends Moses down the mountain. And it's in Exodus 33, now verse 1, where God speaks to Moses as a result of what has been happening among the people. And that offer that I made to you, you can have everything that you want in this life, but you've got to give up something of great value. That's the offer God makes to Moses. Verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and your people, and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it, and I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and you are to go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. So far, this sounds awesome, but... I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. The Lord said, all right, Moses, here's the offer. I promised this land to Abraham. I've been promising it to you, your people for almost 500 years. I'm going to give it to you. You can, you can have Everything that you ever wanted for yourself and for this people, you can have peace because I'm going to drive out your enemies. Um, You can have uh, lavish blessings, never having want. He said this is going to be flowing with milk and honey. You're going to have that provision and that protection. You're going to have that peace, except I'm not going to go with you. Now, let's just, Let's just dial in here for a minute and, and be honest with one another. For most people, for most people, they would consider that a dream offer. That's a, that's a sweet gig right there. Right? You mean I can have all the outward success and none of the obligation to God? I can, I can have all of the blessing and none of the, the religion that I can get. He, Moses was even going to get his own personal angel just in case something went wrong. God said, I'm going to send an angel with you in case something went wrong, and he, and he needed him. And I think while in this room, we would say, of course, we would never take that deal. Functionally, we build lives that relate to God just this way. We build lives that relate to God, not for who He is, but for what He has and what He's willing to give to us. Here's how it plays out. We will, when we get into a crisis, when there's something we need, when there's something we want we suddenly have a desire to pursue God. Suddenly we have a desire to seek after him and to pray and to go after him because there's a thing that we need. But then when God comes through or the need is met and we're out of the crisis, we stop seeking, we stop pursuing, we stop going after. Or we have a thing that we want and a thing that we think we need and so we're pursuing God for it and we're asking God for it and when he doesn't answer the prayer we stop seeking and we stop pursuing because we didn't get what we wanted. And in both of those scenarios here's what is revealed. What is revealed is we were never really after God. We were after what God gives. We were after his stuff and if even if I believe if most professing Christians We're honest. If you told them they could have their very best life right now without having to seek God or pursue Him or follow Him, they'd take it in a heartbeat. And again, we might look at one another and go, man, no, we wouldn't do that. But we build lives that declare exactly that. This is the lives that we build. This is what it is declaring, that we want the gifts, but we don't want the giver of the gifts, right? We want his presence, what he gives to us, but not his His presence, his nearness, his drawing near to us. When I was was a kid, all of my grandparents lived in Southeast Texas, right? And so it was about a four-hour drive, four-and-a-half-hour drive, and so... Every Christmas, we would load up and we would drive down to the Beaumont Port Arthur area for Christmas. Now, I loved going down there for Christmas and it had nothing to do with getting to see my grandparents, right? Why did I love going down there for Christmas? Because I was about to get some stuff and it was going to be awesome, right? I was going to open presents, two sets of grandparents, two different Christmases. This is going to be bad to the bone. That's why I went. It had nothing to do with them, everything to do with But I I grew out of that, okay? You know, right, right in my mid-thirties, I grew out of it, and it was fine. Uh, And I just learned how to value them. (laughs) But we we build lives that relate to God that way, right? That we're after His stuff and not after His heart. And I want you to see. So, so God says to Moses. I'm going to keep my word. I made a promise that you get the land, you get the protection, you get the peace, you get all the provision, you get everything you want for yourself. And for, I'm going to give you that, but you don't get me. And I want you to see the people's response when they hear what God said to Moses in verse 4. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. It says this absolutely grieved the hearts of God's people. And they began to mourn. That little sentence where it says, no one put on his ornaments, it's important. Because what did they use to make the calf? They used their ornaments. They used the gold on their wrist and the gold around their neck and the gold from their ears. And Aaron said, give that to me and I'll make this image. And now they've been called out of that sin of idolatry and their hearts have been broken because God said, I'm going to remove my presence. And suddenly they didn't put on that outward ornament anymore. Why? Because it was an outward picture of an inward humiliation and brokenness and repentance. There was a brokenness over their idolatry. Now, so God puts this to Moses. You can have it all, but you don't have me. People's hearts break. And in verse 12, we see that Moses looks to God and essentially says, God, no deal. Please, no deal. Moses said to the Lord, verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you, In order to find favor in your sight and consider too that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses said, no deal, God, if we don't get you. Moses, why why would he say that? Why would he pass on everything if it meant not having God? Because Moses had discovered two incredibly important truths that made him desperate for more of God. Here's the first one. Moses had discovered that without God's presence, we have nothing. Without God's presence, we have nothing. Right? God said, I'm going to give you the peace. I'm going to give you all that stuff. But Moses recognized Something really significant, something really powerful, and something that for us, we need to take hold of and be captured by. He recognized that people, maybe they can have peace in their life and peace with their enemies, but that doesn't mean they'll have peace in their heart. They may can live in a land that satisfies every physical need and in a culture where they have no physical wants, but that doesn't mean they're satisfied in the soul. And this is true for us. Because we build lives pursuing the land. We build lives pursuing a peace born of what we have and born of no enemies and no conflict. We build lives pursuing a satisfaction based on what we can amass. But I want to tell you, the American dream and the cultural dream that we have of having more will never, cannot, and will never satisfy your soul. It can't do it. It can't do it. And there's a bondage. There is an unseen bondage that we embrace when we look to the things of this world to satisfy. It's like putting on chains. Because what I'm, what I'm saying is, if I just get a little more, I'll be a little more. If I can have the right amount, I'll feel satisfied. I'll have peace. And it starts... I, this is from the oldest person right on down. It is pervasive in school. It is pervasive on social media. There are, your students wage an absolute all-out war for the satisfaction of their soul because everything they see on social media and online says, be like me, have what I have, talk like I talk, and do what I do, and maybe you'll be happy. And they're pursuing that. And you know what they find? Misery. 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 They're finding they're miserable. And some of you have children that are lost and don't know Jesus, and you're putting the medicine you're putting on that is you're just giving them more of the land. And they need more of the presence. I wasn't even gonna say that. And they need more of the presence of God. Because without God's presence, we have we have nothing. It is why we can have a culture filled with people who have everything and they are miserable. Our culture, there are millions of people, millions. The most well-known, the most celebrated people in our culture Behind the curtain are the most miserable. They're the ones who have the most strife, the most disunity, the most brokenness in their relationships, the most depression. Why? Because they believe the lie that said more means better, more means peace, more means satisfied. But without God, they have nothing. This is what is at the heart of Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, when Paul says, but whatever I gain." Whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. But it is a matter because I count them as rubbish. Why? Just if it means that I may gain Christ. Paul knew what it was to have everything, by the way. Just remember who Paul was. Who was he before he was Paul? He was Saul. Saul was a Roman citizen, had the best education on the planet. He was politically powerful, very successful, had risen to the top of his his political stratosphere, and nothing but the future in sight of just moving up and gaining more power. And yet Paul says, I had all of that and it was garbage because I didn't have Jesus. It was garbage. Think of Moses. Think of Moses. Moses knew what it meant to have everything, right? He really was a prince of Egypt. That just wasn't a cool cartoon a few years back. That's actually who this dude was. He was a prince of Egypt, meaning he was raised in the most powerful and wealthiest home on the planet. He never had a need that went unmet. He knew what it was to have everything, but in that season of having everything, he didn't have God. But Moses also knew what it was to have nothing, Because he spent 40 years in a wilderness where all he had was God. And yet, when he held in balance the wilderness or Egypt, he took the wilderness. And here he is standing on the threshold of the promised land. And he is saying, I would rather stay in the wilderness if it means I don't get to have you. Why? Because he had discovered something. People who have truly experienced the presence of God, they know this, that you can have everything, but in having everything, if you have it without God's presence, you have nothing, and you can have nothing in this life by worldly standards, but if in having nothing, you have the presence of God, you have everything. Because, listen to me, there is no treasure, there is no value this world can give you that outweighs the treasure of God with you. There is no thing you can gain, given to you, gained for you, added to you that is greater than the treasure of the presence of God with you. So that The success in your job does not matter if God isn't in it. The amount of money that you amass and save and invest and grow doesn't matter if God isn't blessing it and giving it purpose. The success of your children having everything, it doesn't matter if they do not have the presence of God because without it, we have nothing. Moses discovered that. He said, no deal. I don't want that land if it means I don't give you because without you, I have nothing. Here's the other truth he discovered. That without God's presence, we are nothing. We are nothing. Look at verse 13 again. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And and God said, my presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you Rest. And Moses says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Now, it's important right here. There's a little bit of behind the curtain thing happening in the language. When Moses says, If your presence will not go with me, if that's what your translation says, that's actually a plural form of that. Pronoun. So in the original language, it, it translated, if your presence will not go with us, do not bring us up from here. And some of your translations may say that. It may have the word us there. That's actually the right translation of that. Thing. So God said, Moses, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to give you rest. But Moses said, oh, but if you're not going with us, if you don't bring us up, For how, in verse 16, How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is not, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the planet? Moses recognized that it wasn't just that without God they had nothing. It was that without God they were nothing, right? God's presence was their identity. It set their identity, and it gave that identity meaning and mission and purpose. It told them who they were. God's presence with them told them who they were. And just as important, it told the rest of the world who they were and whose they were. Just, let's just take that for a minute. God's presence was so marked on his people that it alone was a declaration of who they belonged to. And Moses recognized that if you're not with us, We are nothing. We lose our identity. We lose our uniqueness. We lose that mark that reminds us who we are and tells the world who we are. Because their identity was not not given in what they possessed. It was in who possessed them. That was what their identity was. Their identity was not in the land of promise. Their identity was in the God of the promise. That's where their identity was. And there's something really important here, and I don't have as much time as I want. It's a whole nother sermon, but we're, gonna, we're just gonna, we're gonna wedge it in there real quick. Ready? God told Moses, my presence will go with you, and I will be with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses says, God, but if your presence doesn't dwell with us, and if you don't go with us, and if we aren't distinct because you're with us, I and your people, then we don't want to go. Moses did not lose sight of the reality that life in God's presence is not about the individual. It's about the community of faith. Oh, that's a hard lesson for us. Moses understood his identity and his purpose was not rooted in individualism. It was rooted in the community of God's people. Moses said, even, with your, even if you are with me, I don't have an identity with you apart from the people who carry your name. And listen to me, believer, as Christians, we are not meant to live this life out as individuals. We are meant to be a part of the people who bear the name of Jesus. You weren't saved for isolation. There is no such thing of it's just Jesus and me. It's Jesus and we. It's us. And there has to be a shifting of the value given to the covenant community of God. That goes beyond, did I check the Sunday morning box, and dives into, have I grafted in to the people of God so that they are speaking into my life, and I embrace discipleship, and I want people to to point me toward Jesus, and I want to point others toward Jesus, and I want to be iron that sharpens somebody else, and I want them to sharpen me, I want to graft into this, because listen, we cannot experience the full expression of what it means to belong to God by ourselves. We can't do it. And there are so many believers, and some of you are in this room and you're checking the box this morning. Listen, I'm glad you're here. But the 60 minutes that you give us on a Sunday morning is your full connection to the community of faith and you are just as isolated as, and insulated as you could be because it feels unsafe to let people into your life. But you were not saved for isolation. Proverbs 18.1, You'll have heard me quote it. The man who isolates himself breaks out against all sound judgment and just <laughs> seeks his own desire. Moses knew this and Moses said, God, I don't have an identity apart from these people. So if you ain't bringing them, I don't want you to bring me. We are saved under the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Which means we are to find our identity in the community that bears that name. Now, I want you to notice what happens in the conversation from there. So Moses has discovered... We have nothing without your presence. We are nothing without your presence. So, God has said, Moses, or Moses has said, God, we don't, we don't want this land. If it doesn't mean we don't get to, if it means we don't get to have you because you are everything to us. And in verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please, Show me your glory. God answers the prayer of Moses. He says, Okay, I'll go with you. But again, do you see? Moses isn't satisfied with what he knows of God today. He's just desperate for more and more. And the moment God says, Moses, I'll go with you, Moses says, Great, here's my next prayer. Show me more. Show me your glory. If there's more of you to know, I want to know it. If there's more of you to see, I want to see it. And do not let me grow content. Amen. And you say, well, not that kind of selfish? I mean, God just answered his prayer. I want you to hear my heart on this. The one area God wants you to be selfish and stingy and perpetually seeking and asking is when it comes to getting more of him in your life. And that's what, that's what Moses does here. He said, if if it means getting to have your glory and your presence and see your goodness, then I want more of that. Now, think about Moses for a minute. If there was somebody in the Bible, maybe other than Jesus, but someone in the Bible who should be satisfied based on what they have experienced in God, it's got to be Moses, right? (laughs) This guy has... He literally was on holy ground, and the voice of the Lord said, take those shoes off, you're in the presence of God. He talked to God through a burning bush that was on fire but not consumed. He saw every miracle in Egypt where God was raining bugs and frogs and blood, and he saw everything God did to liberate his people. He stood at the bank of an ocean and watched God... Separated. He went up on Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments from the voice of God himself and watched the finger of God draw them out. If anybody had experienced God's presence in a way that they would be satisfied, it's got to be Moses. But Moses is saying, the more I see, the more I want to see. And the more I know, the more I want to know. He was desperate for more of God. And this is a burden that I have for us. In my own heart and in your heart. That so many of us just find ourselves satisfied with where we are. And there's a spiritual apathy that has taken root in us. And too many of us have become just fine with not seeing the presence of God and not seeing the power of God in our lives. And there's been a settling. Because as long as there's peace and provision, if we don't have God's presence, that's all right. That's what I mean when we say we functionally build lives that are okay apart from the presence of God. But Moses said, I I can't settle. I've seen too much. I've experienced too much of you in order to settle for less of you. I know there's more, so I want more. Look at God's response in verse 19. God says, show me, or Moses says, show me your glory. And God said, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now, notice that exchange. It's interesting. What did Moses ask to see? Show me your what? But God said, I'm going to make my what pass before you? My goodness. It's interesting, right? What? seems like Moses asked for one thing, God's going to give him another. But I would tell you, I believe God is using that word goodness synonymous with the word glory here. I believe he is, because here's, the, here's what I want you to know. The goodness of God is the best um, summary of the essence and nature of who he is. Here's what I mean by that. Every attribute of God, every one of them, is a declaration of his goodness. Every attribute of God is a declaration of his goodness. What do you mean? Well, why is God merciful? Because he's good. Why is God generous? Because he's good. Why is God just? Because he's good. Why is God steadfast in love and and long-suffering and patient with us? Because he is good. And to behold the glory of God is to behold the goodness of God. So God, Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, I'm going to show you my goodness. Because if you will gaze at my goodness, you'll see my glory. Amen. That's exactly what happens. Look at verse 5 and through 7 there of Exodus 34. Let's skip over to that next chapter. Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Moses, in this moment, saw the glory of God because he experienced the goodness of God. And I want you to notice what happened in verse 8, the very next verse. When Moses saw his goodness, he quickly bowed his head toward the earth and what? Worshiped. The result of this encounter with God's goodness was worship. Why? Why? Because worship is always the byproduct of experiencing the goodness and the glory of God. When you gaze at the goodness of God, the only byproduct of that is worship. That, that, that's what happens. And so often I think that we don't engage in worship. We can come into this room and have arms crossed and not sing and lean away and not in and not engage in the word and not engage in the worship and we can have this. We can be in this moment with God's people and be absolutely apathetic and it's because we are gazing at something other than the goodness of God. It's one thing to hold. Beliefs about his goodness. That's one thing. It is another thing entirely to behold the beauty of his goodness and to gaze at him and to long for him and to be desperate for him. Head knowledge about the glory of God is irrelevant if it doesn't quicken in my heart a desire for more of him. Knowing more about God doesn't matter if it isn't pressing me to experience more of God. Are you with me? Are you saying, Matt, that it's actually possible to be spiritually apathetic with a head full of knowledge about God? Yes. Yes, it is. It is absolutely possible to be spiritually apathetic and have a head full of knowledge about God. And when Moses said, I wanna see more of you and I wanna experience more of you, God said, good, I want that for you. Gaze at my goodness. Here's a little part of this in verse seven that uh, kind of floors me. God said, I'm going to keep steadfast love for thousands. I'm going to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but I will by no means clear the guilty. Does anybody else feel the contradiction there? Does that just make you scratch your head a little bit and go, wait a minute. (laughs) He said he's going to forgive our sins, but he's not going to clear the guilt. Uh, What's happening here? How is it that God forgives our sins but does not clear the guilt? It is in this. God didn't clear the guilt. He transferred the guilt to Jesus this this little this little verse this little moment with god that he tells moses god is painting a picture of how he is ultimately going to deal with sin in his son jesus christ i'm going to forgive your sin i'm going to forgive your transgression i'm going to deal with that i'm going to remove it but the guilt i'm going to transfer off of you and Put it onto Christ so that if you have received Christ in him, guilt is taken away and you have access now into the presence of God to once and for all with an unveiled face, Paul says, gaze upon the glory of the Lord. Church, we must pursue this. We must pursue his presence with a desperation for more of him. This is where we experience a a greater understanding of who He is. This is where we grow as we encounter His goodness. It's where our our worship deepens and our adoration for him deepens, which is why you see in Revelation chapter 5, it is this perpetual worship and adoration of the Lord God where they just keep shouting, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is then and is to come. You are the lamb who was slain to receive wealth and power and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Why is that? Because heaven never got over for God so loved. Heaven cannot get over that God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Heaven never got over that the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation endured the cross. Heaven never got over. He is not here. He is risen. Heaven can't get over it. And so all heaven is, is a cyclical, ever-growing expression of love toward God as we gaze at the goodness of God when we see the person of Jesus. And my fear is that we are getting over it. We're getting over it. And I can't yell and scream and spit enough to wake that up in your heart or my own. So what do we do? I think first we have to look hard and long and fast at the idols that we've made. Because we make idols out of everything. Where are the idols? Because it wasn't until the idol was gone that the presence of God returned. And I think for some this morning... You earnestly need to come to this altar and hit your knees and say, Lord God in heaven, would you break my heart? I am so spiritually apathetic and I feel dry and I feel indifferent and I don't have desire for you and I don't want to stay here. But you can't quicken your own heart. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you need that work this morning and I'm gonna press just a little bit to say I bet most of us in this room do we need to once again beg God that he would wake us up to a desire for his presence even if it means we say no to the life of comfort and peace and provision if as long as we get God and if for you this morning that just isn't a felt sense I can't make you want it, but I can tell you that in the person of Jesus Christ it is there for you. So maybe you need to come to faith this morning. Maybe this morning you need to come and say, man, I've got a life filled with pursuing the land and it feels good, but there is a thing missing. I do not have peace with God, Then I want you to come take one of us by the hand and let us pray with you. Let us encourage you. Let us help you find that relationship with Jesus but for the majority of us this morning it is in recognition that there is a lack of desperation for God's presence and here's the invitation and then we're going to worship and I'll ask you to respond if that's you if there is a lack of desperation do not stay in your seat turn around and get on your knees come up here to these steps and get on your knees and say Lord God Do not let me live one more day apart from your presence. I need you. Lord, thank you for your word and for how it presses so deeply into our hearts and our lives. As we worship, Holy Spirit, would you move?